You're listening to Duck and Cover. Sarah's got a great episode for you today. She's interviewing Professor Laura McEnany, who's a professor of history at Whittier College. Dr. McEnany's authored a number of books and articles on various topics in history, but the one we're most interested in today is her first book, Civil Defense Begins at Home, Militarization Meets Everyday Life in the 50s. Laura, welcome. Thank you so much. Pretty obvious question to get us started today, but what got you interested in civil defense in the first place? First, it's, it was interesting for me to start to think about the national security state. That's where I started, to think about a big state. And I had been working with some scholars who were studying the welfare state, another big state that it seems unwieldy. And how does a historian enter that state and try to understand it and pick it apart? Part of what I wanted to understand is how ordinary Americans understood that state, whether they thought that state made room for their participation, how they perceived what that state was supposed to do for them as citizens. So part of what I was trying to understand was the national security state as sort of a popular experience, not so much an agency experience or a creation of diplomats, but an everyday state on the ground. And that brought me to civil defense. The other thing was thinking about gender, because often the questions about women in the state touch in many subdisciplines of American history. But I noticed that women were starting to access the national security state through not just peace movements on the other end of this debate, but through uh, movements that were supporting national security, that were about defending and protecting the home front. So all of these threads uh, were interesting to me in the sense of what does it mean to study a big state, but also what does it mean to study the United States in a period of demobilization, but not demilitarization. We are demobilizing from World War II, but we are not demilitarizing. That was where my interest took me. Do you get the sense that people in the 50s who were thinking about how the state was functioning in their everyday lives, do you, do you think they felt more at war than not at war? I think that's a great question. And this question of what is war is so abstract for American citizens in the post-war period, precisely because of the chronological fuzziness we've just talked about. But nuclear war was always a theoretical war, an imaginary war. That's the title of a really good book by Guy Oakes, this imaginary war. So, so they're seeing it in cartoon form, in government films. They're seeing nuclear tests, but they have no tangible understanding of what this is for them. The question that I still don't think I understand is, how did people experience the Cold War? Lots and lots of historians are still working on that question. But what does that experience mean? Are you experiencing it as a person who votes for a, a, a military candidate? Are you experiencing it as a taxpayer who believes strong defense budgets are good for everybody? So where do you enter that state? What's your relationship with that state? And what war is it that you, <laughs> that you think you're fighting? It's very fuzzy in this period. Another kind of area of fuzziness is where the line is between the civilian world and the militarized world. And obviously, militarization is kind of one of the key concepts of, of the book that you wrote. Can you tell us a little bit about how you parse that out for yourself, the difference between civilian and military? Whenever we're studying the history of the state, particularly the military state, we think of 
rational bureaucrats making, making calculated decisions. And in fact, this whole process is more improvisational and confusing than anything else. So the Federal Civil Defense Agency, which is the main agency, it has different titles and different iterations, but it is the only national security agency to solicit civilian input into the national security state. It is the only one that says to American citizens, come on in and not only come on in, we actually need you. And we need to know what you're thinking and we need your volunteer energy and we need, we need your assessment and your feedback of what we're doing. So they are blurring that line between mili uh, military and civilian right away. But the question becomes, do you want military rule of civilian life or do you want strong civilian control of a strong military? Civil defense opens this question because if you're going to start a home front defense project, Who's in charge of that? Again, there's a sort of genuflection to the military that they know how to do this best. <laughs> At the same time, there is a strong suspicion of vesting the military with this kind of control over daily life. So the questions about how to popularize an idea that the ordinary citizen is part of a defense project is very complicated for them. And they sort of traverse this throughout the 50s. What ends up happening is as they popularize civil defense, as they in fact blur that meaning of what is military and what is civilian, they lose control of their narrative. <laughs> During World War II, there was a fairly easy formula that the boys are fighting for the American family, that the family is the object of that defense. In the nuclear age, if we're going to popularize civil defense and make ordinary families part of that, then they're not the family being fought for. They're the family doing the fighting. And that changes the paradigm of this war. So who are they? They're, they're a privatized family. They're an activist unit. They're, as, as civil defense planners call them, the family unit, which is quasi-military. They're a unit. They're part of a larger defense effort. So, so who are they? What are they? As military and civilian roles become deliberately blurred because that's what national security planners think they need. You know, it's this new conception and, and sort of new fuzziness between military and, and civilian. Is that a product of the atomic age? Is that something that just is a product of the national security state, sort of separate from nuclearization? What's different? Is it just the nuclear that's different after 1945? Or is it, is it a combination of things? I think this is more true of Americans after World War II because the war didn't happen on our home front. So these abstractions are possible for us, whereas European citizens are actually living in rubble and they're trying to understand what post-war means to them. They, they don't feel like it's post-war. In the American Civil War, right, that boundary was, was always moving and people were feeling the effects of war so immediately, so profoundly, as Drew Faust says, on a scale, statistically, they had never seen before. So for the nuclear age, the statistics are new, the technology is new, this is, this is a new thing landing on people's doorsteps, sort of like the television. There's a new machine in your room, in your living room. What do you do with it? Sort of like, you know, there's a new cell phone in your teenager's hands. How do we incorporate this technology into our daily life? So I don't think it's, it's new in the history of warfare, but I think for our country in this moment, after World War II, it's not that we didn't suffer during the war, but the, the location of that fighting is elsewhere. So the imaginary 
of that war plays out differently in the United States in this period in history. Yeah, there are all these wonderful kind of sound bites. Uh, you know, the the front line is now your front door, or the the doorstep is now the front lines of the Cold War. Exactly. They always use this notion of front line, front lawn. And, yeah, right. That's what I was going for there. Yeah, front lawn, right? Which is so evocative if you study the post-war period of you know sort of green grass. The, you know, the one historian calls it the moat between the street and the house, your lawn, that that very domestic notion of what is the front line. It's now the front lawn and you're part of that struggle. Yeah. So this kind of baked in suburban nuclear family ideal uh, is so central to civil defense as it shaped up in the 50s. Why do you think the household unit was so integral? Is it just because we suddenly have to think of nuclear war on our doorstep, on our front lawn, or is it something more powerful there? Well, part of it comes from policy because the civil defense bureaucrats zigzag between first trying to understand the technology and then designing defense mechanisms to defend from that technology. But as the nuclear technology through testing, the Soviets testing a bomb in 49, get sort of farther and faster (laughs) than humans can comprehend, they go back and forth between should we cover ourselves or should we evacuate? So run to the basement or run like hell, um, as one of the bureaucrats said, out of the city, into the country. So they're ricocheting between public solutions, publicly funded solutions, and private solutions. And in essence, the American state and the American uh, security bureaucracy does not want to pay for civil defense. What they call it is passive defense, which is its own gendered term, <laughs> and that weaponry is active defense. And so the security planners decide to put their funds into active defense because they think that's going to be a sort of more robust projection abroad. What that effectively leaves is passive defense for the civilians. And so the family becomes a solution to the problems of funding and military control. Let's privatize it and domesticate it. And the family, we can leave American families with some instruction to do this in the American way, which is to say voluntarism. (laughs) And there's a symbolic politics that are very useful besides a budgetary and policy reason that make the family this useful unit. And that is Americans then can project their civil defense system in a way that is totally opposite to the Soviet Union. We're not collectivist. We're not state funded. We're not regimented. We're not controlled by military state. We are small, voluntary and family based. And that is the way we're going to function in our civilian defense. And that is what we're going to protect as the best of our society and project nationally and abroad. Yeah, so just completely connected to this, the, the domestic linking into international events and reflecting back and forth on one another, like everything is linked together in this Cold War period. So what about children? What what role did kids play in the civil defense apparatus? Could you tell us a little bit more about what you found in that arena? The national security state sort of plans along two tracks. And one is the highly bureaucratic and secret track that's collecting research, running experiments, et cetera. But there's the public track of the national security state, which is doing outreach to PTAs, schools, children's groups, um, girl groups, the Campfire Girls, the Girl Scouts. There's an excellent book by Jennifer Helgren that looks at 
girls, the role of girls in the atomic age. And she points out, and this is what I found, is that children are activated as new nuclear citizens in this way that is really an interruption of their innocence, right? We're in this period of a kind of preciousness of the American family and a kind of moving them away from the gravity of war and giving them a childhood. But civil defense has a new assignment for them. And the evidence I found is that children sort of embrace this. But there's one way children are being used, right? The symbolic politics of making children volunteers and future citizens of this nuclear state. That There's a role for them to play there in the family and alone. But the actual psychological impact on children, we have yet to understand that. And to my knowledge, there's no really good oral history of people who are now adults thinking about memory of fear and terror. Part of what I was trying to do in my book was historicize fear, to look at the manufacturing of fear by the national security state, but also the popularization of that fear to motivate preparedness. We can look at all kinds of documents and assignments and sort of, you know, preparedness homework for children, but the actual psychological experience of fear, I don't think we actually know that yet. And some historians are sort of nibbling on the margins of this. And we, we need a really good oral history of memory of nuclear fear. What was that fear? What did it feel like? How do you remember it? And even the memory of it is historically significant. I think the closest we can get is sort of the, the public memory of this era. We've named the podcast Duck and Cover because it, it's such a flashpoint. It's a thing that people connect to. If, if you remember one thing about civil defense, it's Duck and Cover. It's Bert the Turtle. Why do you think sort of our popular notion of civil defense is just like the kitschy bomb shelter, the silly people who thought that they could live? Like, how have we arrived at this goofball's interpretation? Why, why is our public memory there? Let's think for a minute about Duck and Cover, right? It's a cartoon, as you said. It's, it's essentially a children's cartoon. It's a children's activity. One of the things I do in my classroom before we study or, or read anything is I ask my students to duck and cover. We literally get under the table and we don't pretend to do it. We actually go all the way to the ground, forehead to the ground, hands on the head, and I make them hold that for about a minute. And then we talk about that ritual. We, we talk about that posture. And it's sort of incredible when you think about it. During a decade, during an era in which the United States is saying, we are the biggest superpower in the world. We have the most weapons. We are the most powerful. This is a posture of incredible fear and submission. And we have trained a whole generation of students, young people, their first experience of this era is in that physical position. And so how that became kitschy and silly is interesting because if we take that ritual seriously, we can then begin to talk in real terms about fear and what does it mean to use a politics of fear. And not only among children, although that's the most popular in terms of imagery, but among adults too. One of the things that a national security state does is traffic in fear. That's one of its products to generate fear, to explain fear, to control fear, to unleash it, pull it back, unleash it again. <laughs> Part of the way I think about your question about, about kitsch is because the war never happened, because we now know there was no defense, we can laugh at the cultural products of that moment. 
But I think we need to sort of lean in and, and really examine those in all seriousness. And again, through the lens of fear, what does it mean to generate fear in a population? What were we doing? Why were we doing it? Did we lose control of it? Was it effective? And in the rearview mirror, was that a useful strategy for a state to use? I mean, one one way we can also trace the tangible product of fear, the, the lived experience of fear, is to look at how people pushed back against civil defense, too, which is something I, I know you know a little bit about. Could you talk a little bit about how, by the late 1950s, some contingents were starting to say no to civil defense? Some of the most important groups were these peace movements to start questioning the rhetoric coming out of Washington. You're telling us this is survivable, but every image we see looks like this is this is unsustainable. We're, we're not going to survive this. The science you're putting out is full of contradictions. <laughs> it's survivable if you do this. It's not survivable if you do this. Even civil defense administrators said it is impossible to project a posture of readiness with the science that we have and to project at the same time, you should be fearful, but you can survive. And so generating that mood in the public, fear, but control, panic, but management, peace groups begin to understand in that breach, there's something there to protest. There's something there to reject because that rhetoric just doesn't go. So there their Cold War consciousness begins to change because of the leakage and the confusion and the contradictions of the information being put out by the national security state. But I also have to say that if we think about the 50s, we think about this era, as you were saying earlier, in these very kitschy ways, we think about the mushroom cloud, we think about Bert the Turtle, but we should also think about this as one of the most important periods in American history in terms of engaging questions about citizenship and freedom. The civil rights movement is doing incredibly important work in this period. So this is a very serious decade that's raising very serious questions about citizenship and freedom and justice and fairness. I think about peace groups in connection with civil rights in that they're asking fundamental questions of our state and our leadership. And in the rearview mirror, politicians and national security planners talked about fatigue, just sort of this war fatigue. So if we look at what they said about the pushback, they talked about fatigue, disbelief, a credibility problem. It's not that they didn't believe what they were doing was important, but they also acknowledged that the message they were sending to American citizens was confusing. And so if we take their words seriously, we might say that they understood it was a sort of confused policy with a dose of war fatigue and a sense that this is such a big weapon, we can't wrap our brains around this. And, and so this is just a kind of human condition of the nuclear age, is confusion. Through that comes apathy. Now, we could talk about apathy as a kind of pushback. When we think about citizen apathy in the 50s around building shelters and civil defense, we don't think about that as resistance. We don't think about that in the same way as we think about peace groups who are actively mobilizing against the state and the rhetoric of the national security state. But apathy might be rethought as its own kind of resistance. And, and there might be some room there for us to keep thinking about what political meanings there are in apathy that might be instructive for us. I think you're absolutely right that 
that apathy should be scrutinized in the same way as these very visible peace movements and, and picketing in the streets and, and writing letters even. If we look at people's behavior in the 50s, right, their voting behavior, they're voting for candidates who endorse a strong national security state. They're voting for tax policies that will fund that national security state. They're supporting that rhetoric of toughness and a strong posture against the Soviets. But as I say in the book, in this era, we're sort of public militarists, but private pacifists in that the national security state is asking us to militarize our homes, to drill ourselves, to change, fundamentally change the home, to add, physically change the space, to build a shelter. They're asking American families to do this. And most families reject this. They don't remake their homes. They don't build shelters. They don't drill on a monthly basis. But they support public militarism. But privately, they're pacifists. They're not engaging at this level in the way that civil defense bureaucrats are asking them to do. They're simply not doing it. Is that a kind of ambivalence about the national security state that we need to take seriously? What does that tell us about fear? What does that tell us about citizenship? What does that tell us about compliance to the directives of a state that is trying to scare you, but also reassure you? And so the ambivalence, the apathy, these are places where I think we need to take our analysis because they coexist. And because they're fuzzy, historians don't always know how to go there. And as you said, we're less comfortable with the, the sort of psychological nuances. But, but that is where a lot of Cold War history lives in the mind. Right. We can't possibly expect there to be a monolithic reaction to this. When you're talking about the individual scale, uh, everybody is going to behave differently in the face of something that's so new, different, and, and quite frankly, scary. Fear is not static in the 50s, right? The, the Soviet bomb in 49, the H-bomb in 53, Sputnik in 57, yep. and then Berlin crisis in 61. Right. How does the fear change over, over that decade? If we look at these touch points, these flashpoints, the Soviet bomb, the hydrogen bomb, Sputnik, we definitely see spikes in fear if we look at public opinion polls and the, own, the Civil Defense Administration's own internal research, because they deployed a whole range of social scientists to sort of track this fear. And what they were trying to find out is in these moments of fear, of genuine national fear, is that a moment to capitalize on changing people's behavior? And they use this term, bomb consciousness. We have to raise the bomb consciousness of the American people. That consciousness was essentially a consciousness of fear. But to ratchet that fear up in an already fearful situation risked making people feel too overwhelmed, that the fear was so great, we can't grapple with it, and there's no solution to it. The other interesting wrinkle here is in a national security state, one of the things you want to do is install in your people tremendous confidence in your military. And one of the things they found when they surveyed people was American people had terrific confidence in the military. So if we were going to be attacked, the military would take care of it, which meant that we didn't have to do a whole heck of a lot in our homes because we would have this first line of defense and so there's this faith in our military, this faith in American science and technology, 
that has its own momentum that actually gets in the way of what civil defense planners are saying, which is to be afraid and therefore be prepared. And being prepared can reduce your fear. And so they're ping-ponging between amplifying the fear in these moments of international crisis, controlling the fear, and even changing the attitude about the limits of American military power and prowess. Um, Many documents I looked at said the military can take you so far and you have to go the rest of the way with your family by turning your home into a defense unit, into a shelter, etc. Once you decide to deploy fear, you have to play with all of its elements and all of fear's adjuncts, which are attitudes that you can't control or anticipate. And looking at this history is really about looking at how bureaucrats are trying to stoke fear and control fear. And it is forward and backwards and sideways. And they never get it right because fear is, to, to control fear, there's no science, there's, there's no logic. <laughs> it's not logical. And they're trying to make it logical. I love that you brought up bomb consciousness, by the way, because the project that we're working for here is Alex Wellerstein's and his big shtick is nuclear salience. Yes. Which might be interpreted in another way of just saying bomb conscious for the post 9-11 era. But one of the things you and Sarah were starting to hit upon is kind of the material culture of of nuclear fear in particular. You know, when I think of this idea that we have this kind of silly memory of of civil defense, well, I wonder, is it really just a silly memory of aging material culture, right? Like I I watch movies from the 50s all the time. Well, actually, I don't all the time. But when I do, I think to myself, like, wow, that's quite a silly film. Or, you know, when I uh, grab, you know, one of my father's toys out of the basement from the 50s, I think to myself, why would you ever play with this? Well, they didn't have iPhones. I get it. How much of this kind of collective memory of civil defense just being this silly thing is really a collective memory of material culture being a silly thing? Part of me, as I hear your question, thinks about the fact that because this weapon is so new, we have to make it small and accessible. (laughs) In order to make the fantastic familiar, we use popular culture to do that. And much of that is aimed at children. So monsters become the language of fear. Mystery becomes the language of fear. Cartoons become the vehicle through which we explain fear. It's hard to see those two things together, the cartoon birth the turtle and sort of the geopolitics of threat in that same moment. You're coming about toys and sort of the, the kitsch. That's where most people want to park their memory. I'm not sure I understand why. I wonder if it's a way to tap down their own fear, which is to say, we got through that era. Looking back, it seems so silly. I'm trying to think of a parallel. For example, after 9-11, this is an incredibly fearful country. And you could argue that that, that is where we are now. How would we historicize more recent moments of fear. And your question, do we have kitsch associated with more recent episodes of fear? I don't think we have that kind of kitsch. I don't think we have toys about preparing for terrorism. I don't 
I don't think we have that level of silliness and juvenile conversation about something so grave and terrifying. How was the moment of fear in the 1950s, how would we compare them to more recent moments that we have lived through? I still don't know, except to sort of go to the place where Sarah was saying, you know, that historians aren't comfortable going, which is human beings trying to acculturate themselves to new technology, human beings trying to understand something new, human beings trying to make the fantastic familiar. This is where perhaps we can continue the conversation in ways that can help us understand the fearful moments we're experiencing now or after 9-11 or even in the 1980s during the, the nuclear era of the Reagan administration. Do you think our culture's relationship with emergency management has changed as a result of 9-11? Certainly, you know, now we don't have the FCDA anymore. We have we have FEMA, we have Homeland Security. Right. How is this situation different, I guess, from a citizen and state standpoint? To go back to how we started this conversation, thinking about a state apparatus in a citizen's life, how is it different now? I don't think it's that different. I think that... Panic is episodic. Fear is episodic. And if we were to talk with national security planners now in the, in the current moment, I think we probably would hear them lamenting that Americans aren't taking threats very seriously. They're not living with a consciousness of uh, the threat of external surveillance, countries, weaponry, etc. We're not we're not on alert. But again, if we look at what happened after 9-11, there, there's a parallel to what happened in the 1950s. In the 1950s, they were trying to stoke fear and reassure at the same time. After 9-11, George Bush said to people, go to a baseball game, go to the mall. He was trying to remind us that normal life continues. Right. And he picked America's game and America's pastime, which I would say is shopping, not baseball. He asked us to re-engage the daily, the quotidian, as a way of turning away from that kind of fear. In moments of national insecurity, the national security state chooses to hide a lot from us. So Americans are trying to make decisions about how we respond to fear with very little information. This was true in the 1950s. This was true after 9-11. This was true before 9-11. I think it would be fruitful to think about other societies. How are they dealing with fear when they have actual threats in a more immediate way in their lives every day? Again, this generation, we just haven't lived through that. Other generations of Americans have, but we have to reach way, way back in our history to understand how people were experiencing violence or the threat of violence, which is what nuclear preparedness was, to, to really think through, imagine, and visualize violence happening to you, to your body, to your home, to your neighborhood. Terrorism is the same thing, to think about what does it mean when violence visits us in our home. We're still in the atomic age. That's something I like to open with with my students. We are still in the atomic age. We forget that. Do you see a place for some sort of nuclear civil defense in our society today, 
Could it work? Do we need it? Thoughts? I think it depends on what kind of threats we're talking about. I think it also depends on the degree to which you want to democratize the normal practices of a nuclear security state, of a national security state. In order to engage citizens, you have to open that state up to citizen input, where citizens are left with secrets and fear. The question is, can you do national security in a way that is also democratic? Can you open the state enough to invite citizen input? When we ask citizens to engage in civil defense for a current era, what are we asking them to protect? When they don't feel enfranchised to begin with, are they going to be willing to sacrifice and engage? What are we going to ask them to defend and what are they imagining they're defending? A quick example from the 50s is that we asked American families to build shelters, but almost 40% of Americans didn't own homes. Those who owned homes, almost half of them didn't have homes with basements. So we were asking Americans to privatize civil defense without giving them the tools to do so, without economically enfranchising them. So this question of what versions of civil defense could we use now? There's so many ways to think about that. But for me, it's, it's just always contextual. What is the threat? What is the willingness of the state to invite citizens into real and democratic conversation about the threat? Is fear a way to organize a conversation about security? Certainly insecurity is about fear, but is fear the first conversation? Is fear the basis of good policymaking? Is fear the best way to ask intelligent questions about how to build a civil defense program for the current moment? And it seems to me we're residing in fear and we have been residing in fear since 9-11. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be afraid or feel afraid. I'm asking is, is fear the place we start the conversation? There's one story from a female civil defense administrator, uh, Catherine Howard, and she was appointed to be the sort of woman's bureau of civil defense. She witnessed one of the nuclear test explosions that was done on a mannequin family at a nuclear test site. Essentially, this family is posed in JCPenney clothing in a sort of very familiar American living room with dishes, they're about to have a meal, and they're blown up. And the mannequin family is the stand-in for the American family. What could happen to you? Could you survive? What would happen to you? How would you rebuild? And of course, they're blown to bits. And the impossibility of that is very evident in the photographs taken after this test explosion. But she walks in with goggles and a radioactive suit, and she grabs the shard of a dish. And she takes the shard of this plate, and she says, you know, the point of this exercise is not to live in fear, but to puzzle over how we're going to go forward, how we're going to rebuild. And the dish is the symbol that you can, you can repair this cracked dish. There's a sort of optimism that she has, and she travels with the shards that she took from this test site. She actually goes on a circuit and shows people the physical objects that survived from this test, 
but she doesn't show them the photographs. They're completely destroyed. These mannequins are dismembered in many senses. But she takes the rubble and suggests that the rubble is the sign that something survived, so you can too. She's interesting to me because she acknowledges fear. She doesn't hide from that. She's actually someone who talks about fear. But she engages something Americans engage all the time in this period, and it's optimism. We have the science, we have the technology, but most of all, we have the attitude that we can survive this because we're Americans. Duck and Cover is funded through the Reinventing Civil Defense Project at the Stevens Institute of Technology, thanks to a generous grant from the Carnegie Corporation of New York. The pod's home is Idaho State University. Our audio editor is Dylan Moon, and our web coordinator is Krista White. The pod would also like to thank Idaho State University's history department, and especially Kathy Bloodgood for all her help. Find us on the web at duckandcoverpod.home.blog and on Twitter at duckandcoverpod or email us at duckandcoverpod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. See you in the fallout shelter.